As a nonprofit radio station, KPFK relies on you, our listener, for the largest part of our income. By giving your generous pledge today, you keep programs such as Inner Vision on the air. Please call with your gift now at 818-985-5735 or pledge online at kpfk.org. Thank you. You're listening to Fiercely Independent KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles and on the web at kpfk.org. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Good evening, Southern California. It's the 9th of February, and for tonight's Friday edition of KBFK's Rebel Alliance News, good news, bad news on the drought. LAUSD bars charter schools. Texit poll on independence. Dick Plotkin's ode to the LA Times. Marcy Winograd from Santa Barbara. Don DeBar has Tucker's Putin interview, and Paulina Vasiliev brings us non-NATO news. All this and more coming up for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. I'm Hal Lore. Let's get this started. The rain is falling through the mist of sorrow that surrounded me. The sun There's good news and bad news on California's water supply and drought after record rainfall. So, let's start with the good news. The California sun is gonna shine clear and cold over the weekend, giving Angelinos a chance to dry, but not just that. The record-setting rain that hammered Southern California this week, coupled with solid water storage from last year's wet winter, has Harvey De La Torre, head of the Municipal Water District of Orange County, saying he's very confident that we will not need drought restrictions in 2024. After a run of historically dry years, no part of California has been under drought conditions since September, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. And the new storm is likely to reduce water demands for weeks, with most Californians well-trained to turn off sprinklers during storms. Also, state records show that both rainfall and snowpack levels, which were far below average just a couple of weeks ago, are now much improved. But in the not-so-great news, water experts say conditions in this Pineapple Express storm haven't been ideal for bolstering the state's water supply. That's because so much rain fell so quickly that agencies controlling dams and reservoirs have to prioritize flood management over water recovery, which means releasing lots of water into the ocean. Agency efforts to capture some stormwater in storage and groundwater recharge basins have improved in recent years, but when parts of Los Angeles get 75% of their annual rainfall in just two days, local water agencies can't do much to keep up. Also, while California mountains have certainly been getting solid snow, the storm just wasn't cold enough to build up the massive snowpack the region needs to be insulated against dry months in years to come. Historically, El Nino winters weren't that much warmer than other winters in California, Daniel Swain, a climate scientist at UCLA, noted during a brief on the storms. But now they are. That's climate change. For much of California, snowpack has historically been ideal as a reservoir since it stores water during winter and gradually releases it as snowmelt each spring and summer. So from a water management perspective, the most helpful anti-drought weather pattern would be a series of smaller and colder storms that help the snowpack pile up. But instead, climate change is fueling the opposite condition with longer and more intense dry periods followed by extremely wet storms that often don't deliver much mountain snow. 
That's why, while Californians aren't likely to face bans on outdoor watering this summer, drought conditions can't be ruled out in the near future. Because if temperatures start to rise early this year, like it has in the recent past, snowpack will melt too early to be of much use for water supplies, since reservoirs would still be full. As of now, California still has a month left of this typically rainiest part of the year, and precipitation is still below average, lagging behind at only 75% of average. So, before the end of the rainy season, there is a threat that dry conditions could set in again, but major statewide reservoirs are still above average thanks to last year's snowpack and are in a much better position than they were two years ago. While experts are predicting a return to El Nino conditions that might make this another wet winter, the water year started slowly, and along with snowpack concerns, the Colorado River, which is important for Southern California's imported water supply, remains well below average. The Colorado River also is fed by melting snowpack in Colorado, which this year has seen a so-so snow year. And since rivers get some of their supply from flows fed by groundwater, they don't recover as quickly or easily from drought, with steady precipitation needed over a number of years to replenish depleted groundwater. So even with the recent storms, the message remains the same. For California's water in the future, we still need to focus on continuing to capture more water during wet years and getting our infrastructure ready for extreme storms, with more storage and recharge projects, plus upgrades to our aging delivery systems. Not all bad news. KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. In the never-ending merry-go-round of American gun politics, and in a follow-up story from last week, once again... A federal appeals court has temporarily reinstated California's ammunition background check law that a certain U.S. district judge in San Diego struck down early last week. Then later last week, California Attorney General Rob Bonta asked the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals to stay the judge's January 31st decision while his office appealed the ruling... And on Monday of this week, a three-judge panel granted the stay motion in a two-to-one decision. The current California law in question requires background checks for most purchases of firearms ammunition in California and bars California residents from buying and bringing home ammunition purchased out of state. If you recall, U.S. District Judge Roger Benitez struck down those regulations last week, ruling the law violated the Second Amendment and the Dormant Commerce Clause. As part of his ruling, Judge Benitez issued an immediate injunction barring the enforcement of the law and later denied Bonta's request to stay his decision pending appeal, meaning that California residents were able to purchase ammunition without undergoing background checks for about five days, until the Ninth Circuit Court granted the stay on Monday. In declining to stay his ruling last week, Benitez had written that the government's case in the lawsuit challenging the law was weak. He said his decision was based on four legal principles that all favored not granting the stay. The two appellate judges who granted the stay, Richard Clifton, a President George W. Bush appointee, and Holly Thompson, a President Joe Biden appointee, did not give a reason for doing so. Bush appointee Consuelo Callahan echoed Benitez's reasoning in her dissent. The California Rifle and Pistol Association, one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, criticized the Ninth Circuit for wiping out the ruling issued by Judge Benitez negating the state's restrictions on ammo purchases. And if all of this seems familiar, that's because it is. This version of the U.S. District Judge Roger Benitez ruling, his denial of the stay and the Ninth Circuit's granting of the stay played out almost identically in the same case nearly four years ago when in April 2020, the judge struck down the same law and the Ninth Circuit reinstated it just a few days later while the government appealed. But before the Ninth Circuit could rule on that appeal, the U.S. Supreme Court issued an opinion in a New York gun case that upended Second Amendment case law, which prompted the Ninth Circuit to send the case back to Benitez. And now it's once again back with the appeals court. 
another gun control politics version of Deja Vu all over again. KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. In school news, thousands of students may have to move to new LA Unified campuses in the fall as charter schools will be barred from hundreds of Los Angeles Unified School District campuses under a new policy that is among the most restrictive of its kind. The new rules, presented at a school board meeting Tuesday, January 30th, prevent charters from being cited on campuses that have been identified as serving vulnerable students, accounting for roughly 350 of about 770 school buildings in the district. But charter schools would still be offered space to operate in other LAUSD district school buildings. The regulations prevent co-location in low-performing schools, community schools that provide social services, and schools in the district's Black Student Achievement Plan, immediately impacting about 21 charter schools, now located in those buildings. Enrolling thousands of students who may need to move to new LA Unified campuses in the fall. The new rules are a reversal for the city that historically has been friendly to charter schools and was immediately opposed to charter advocates who threatened legal action in a letter to the school board as soon as the new policy was announced. California Charter School Association President Mirna Castorajon said the rules violate state law compelling the district to give space to charter schools by keeping them out of entire neighborhoods served by schools in the three categories. In the worst case scenario, of course, the schools are literally evicted from campuses, said Castorjon. A letter sent to the board by the association said the policy violates a portion of the state law requiring that public school facilities be shared fairly among all public school pupils, including those in charter schools. Castorajon said the policy would create charter school deserts in underserved parts of the district. The long-simmering conflict over charter schools in Los Angeles reached a flashpoint in September when the board issued a resolution compelling Carvalho to create the policy and spelled out many of the specific components it should contain. The resolution, crafted by Board President Goldberg and Board Member Rivas, called for the policy preventing charters from being co-located in school buildings that enrolled vulnerable students in the three groups. Schools that are struggling the most to educate our students should not be added continuously more things to do, said Goldberg, like figure out a bell schedule and how to share the cafeteria and how to share the playground. Districts that provide classroom space to charter schools such as Los Angeles, often declined to offer charters their choice of location, said Fordham Institute President Mike Petrelli. But it's uncommon for a city to delete such a large chunk of school from eligibility for co-location, he said. It's unusual for the district to be so flagrant and to put it down in writing rather than to just find myriad ways to make life difficult, Petrelli said. It seems very in your face. Mel Voin said the new policy is unneeded because the district is facing enrollment declines. The rules prevented by Cavallo, he said neglect potential solutions such as the use of private buildings or more strategic school sightings to mitigate the negative impacts of co-location. We definitely have enough space for everyone, Melvoin said Tuesday. We just don't allocate it property. This article first appeared at laschoolreport.com. KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. For this story, feel free to take it as political commentary and with a huge grain of salt coming from full disclosure, and first time I've ever done that, an unapologetic New Cal Exit supporter, but a recent Newsweek MSN article titled How Texas Would Vote If an Independence Referendum Held Today has crossed my desk. The survey asked 814 eligible voters in Texas whether they would support the state leaving the American Union to become an independent country and how they would vote in a hypothetical secessionist referendum on this question. Overall, 39% were against secession, 33% supported it, while the rest neither supported nor opposed it. 
So Newsweek claimed in predictably dismissive terms that Texans would vote to remain part of the United States if an independence referendum were held in the Lone Star State, at least according to the small sampling poll. However, political scientists were divided, with one saying the results mirrored those of other results for successful and unsuccessful secessionist movements in their relatively early stages, such as the CalExit campaign in California or the Brexit campaign in the United Kingdom. And with the talk of Civil War 2.0 gaining popularity and America's growing cultural and political divides in Texas, there has been a growing interest in what would happen if the state did vote to become an independent nation, as it was from 1836 until joining the United States in 1845. Such calls are being intensified by tensions between authorities in Texas and the federal government over how to handle the Mexican border. Just days ago, FBI agents stopped a plot by three militiamen to travel to the Texas-Mexico border and kill Border Patrol agents and immigrants crossing illegally because they believe the country is being invaded. But, in better news for Texas independence campaigners, in the latest polls for Newsweek, when asked for their response to the question that if it left the United States, could Texas succeed as an independent country, 44% chose agree versus 20% that say they neither agree nor disagree and only 30% for disagree. Daniel Miller, president of the pro-independence Texas National Movement, told Newsweek the poll shows that Texas is polling at the same support levels as Brexit, CalExit, and Scottish independence did before the referendums began to be held. And like those other secession movements, it also shows that opposition to Texit is far weaker than national politicians and America's corporatized media pretend. Professor Matt Fortrup, a political scientist who specializes in new state formation, noted that with independence referendums, you often see that those who want to secede win over the campaign. In Scotland, the SNP, or Scottish National Party, came from 29% at the beginning of the campaign and ended at 45% as more of the population embraced the idea and ideals of independence. And even here in California, poll numbers as recently as 2018 showed that over 40% of Californians either supported or would not oppose California independence. Even despite smears by foreign operatives pretending to be CalExit leaders, which led to federal criminal investigations, the numbers had grown steadily from around 20% in 2015 until Biden's victory in 2020, and will likely whiplash back into serious new CalExit discourse if Donald Trump returns to the White House. Showing this has, in all cases, moved the needle consistently to within touching distance of independence referendums. Today, the polls may show that Texas isn't imminent, but these percentages should worry Governor Abbott, who is against Texit. Tensions between Texas authorities and the Biden administration have surged in recent weeks over how to handle the Mexican border. In terms of political impact, the propagation of pro-secession poll results are currently more likely to encourage continued defiance of federal authority in Texas than they are to result in any serious impactful consideration of actual secession or independence at the moment. But still, the question in this election year remains, if Joe Biden wins a second term, will Texas support continue to grow? And like in 2016, how will the aegis of independence shift if Donald Trump wins? KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. It looks like California legislators want to make homeless camps illegal as California Senate GOP leader Brian Jones of San Diego and Democratic Senator Catherine Blakespear of Encinitas announced a bipartisan bill this week to ban homeless encampments near sensitive community areas California-wide. Modeled after San Diego's unsafe camping ordinance and describing California's homeless crisis as inhumane and unhealthy, Senate Bill 1011 prohibits encampments within 500 feet of schools, open spaces, and major transit stops. 
It also bans camping on sidewalks if shelter space is available, requires cities or counties to give an unhoused person 72 hours notice before clearing an encampment, and requires enforcement personnel to provide information about homeless shelters in the area. The Senate bill cites that California has spent $22 billion in the past six years on homelessness, but that's done nothing to slow a nearly 40% increase in homeless population and states that California's current approach to homelessness is failing. Californians are tired of it, but in recent counts, California has more than 181,000 unhoused people, making up almost 28% of the national total. And utterly ignoring the fact that both Democratic and Republican political parties in California have stressed so-called market-based solutions. A build-baby-build philosophy which has made real estate developers richer, created a glut of empty luxury housing, and done nothing to stop rising rents, and has had virtually no success in actually combating homelessness in California. GOP leader Brian Jones stated the obvious when he said that the state's homeless issue was a nonpartisan issue, adding that it was not the goal to criminalize homelessness he touted the bill's 18 other co-authors of both parties, including Blakespeare, who said that San Diego's camping ordinance has moved about 60% of people off its downtown streets since going into effect in July. But advocates for unhoused people argue that displacing homeless people is traumatizing and dangerous to their health. And despite California's current $750 million multi-year initiative to clear homeless encampments again, it's uncertain whether any significant number of displaced homeless people can find permanent housing. If the bill is passed, it's also unclear how it will shake out with a highly anticipated U.S. Supreme Court ruling. In January, the High Court agreed to hear a case that has the potential to either grant California cities and counties more authority to clear homeless encampments and penalize those who sleep on the street, or continue to restrict them from enforcing camping bans. There is also bipartisan support for giving local governments more power. Governor Gavin Newsom, in particular, has railed against court rulings that have tied local officials' hands. But what this will mean to the person actually living on the street remains to be seen. KPFK's Rebel Alliance News will keep you posted. KPFK, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. I guess Texas is just busy this week. In legalization news, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is suing five Texas cities over their decriminalization of marijuana. In a Wednesday press release, the Office of the Attorney General said it was suing Texas cities for instructing police not to enforce Texas drug laws concerning possession and distribution of marijuana. Paxton's suit comes amid a broader push by the conservative state government to exert greater authority over its left-leaning cities. The five cities targeted in Wednesday's suit are Austin, San Marcos, Killeen, Elgin, and Denton, each of which enacted laws decriminalizing marijuana one to three years ago. Paxton did not clarify why he chose to bring the lawsuit now, because although none of the cities has legalized the drug— which would allow it to be bought and sold openly, each has passed ordinances directing police and prosecutors to deprioritize pressing charges against people holding small amounts of cannabis. In Austin, for example, a 2020 city council resolution directed police not to press charges against those caught with less than four ounces of marijuana. In November 2022, voters in other cities now being sued by Paxton resoundingly approved ballot measures that decriminalized up to the same limit, though these reforms have drawn resistance from local law enforcement. That opposition was strong enough to cause the city of Harker Heights to drop its decriminalization ordinance just two weeks after voters passed it, after the city manager wrote in a 2022 letter that the responsibility to decriminalize rested with the state. And that's an opinion that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton shares, and one that informs the suit against the five cities that still have decriminalized marijuana. 
The lawsuit announced on Wednesday is based on a reading of the Texas Local Government Code, which contains language forbidding cities and counties from any policy under which the entity will not enforce Texas laws relating to drugs. I will not stand idly by as cities run by pro-crime extremists deliberately violate Texas law and promote the use of illicit drugs. All right, this is where KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles would like to let you know that, as always, we need your support. So please pick up your phone and call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Or go online at kpfk.org and donate to listener-supported KPFK. Become a member of our sustainer circle by donating $25, $50, $100 or more and join the KPFK family. Think about it. KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles is independent programming with voices you just don't hear anywhere else. Voices of opposition, peace, defiance, hope, and resistance in a world that wants to silence the truth and enforce conformity. So please, go to kpfk.org or call us at 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735 and make your pledge today. Because let's face it, Radio silence for a Los Angeles icon like KPFK would be a tragic loss for all of us. 90.7 KPFK, Los Angeles. In tonight's City Watch LA offering, Ode to the Los Angeles Times, on its last legs, it still shills for real estate speculators. By Dick Platkin. For years, the Los Angeles Times has increased prices and trimmed columns, sections, pages, and reporters. Nevertheless, circulation numbers are still in freefall. Is it just a matter of time until online publications like CityWatch LA, LA Progressive, and Capital and Main become LA's major news sources? Regardless of your answer, under the Chandler family, then Sam Zell, and now Patrick Sunjong, the Times has openly shilled for real estate speculators. This editorial bias was on full display in a recent opinion piece by Rand economist Jason Ward entitled, Why is LA still letting single-family homeowners block solutions to the housing crisis? For those who don't know, Rand is a Santa Monica-based think tank whose origins are immediate post-World War II efforts by the U.S. War Department, now misnamed the Department of Defense, to connect military planning with research and development decisions. Ward's column is based on a tall tale fabricated by developers and their followers that homelessness results from a lack of apartments and single-family neighborhoods. Their self-serving solution to this claim is the repeal of zoning and environmental laws. Once these pesky regulations are whisked away, real estate developers can replace the houses they bulldoze with lucrative, overpriced, under-part apartments. Why this approach makes the housing crisis worse? Well, first, California neighborhoods zoned for single-family homes no longer exist because the state legislature adopted housing laws that a allow three accessory dwelling units, or ADUs, on lots zoned for single-family homes. This 2016 law permits a 1,200-square-foot backyard house, a 500-square-foot portion of the main house, with a separate entrance and a small house on wheels. And B, permit homeowners or investors to subdivide a single-family lot into two separate parcels. Senate Bill 9, adopted in 2021, allows them to then build a duplex and add three ADUs on each half. Second, few homeowners are willing to move, demolish their own house, subdivide the underlying lot, and then build and manage replacement duplexes and ADUs. Instead, homeowners quietly sell their house to real estate speculators who build and sell McMansions. Homeowners can pocket $500,000 by selling their house to a mansionizer, a transaction that has happened 40,000 times in Los Angeles. Furthermore, according to the City Hall, a studio ADU rents for $1,369 a month and a one-bedroom ADU costs $1,765 a month. 
Since few homeless people can afford these prices, this further explains why building more market housing does not reduce homelessness. Third, this developer solution to homelessness, rescinding zoning laws, ignores the underlying cause of the housing crisis. Evictions, terminations of public housing programs, economic inequality, and rising housing prices. Furthermore, revoking zoning laws increases the market value of upzone parcels and therefore increases the cost of housing. This explains why these reforms price even more people out of housing. This developer solution to the housing crisis repeatedly championed by the LA Times invariably boomerangs. When elected officials pare back zoning and environmental laws, more Angelinos are priced out of housing. And although these changes make the housing crisis worse, they also provide evidence that elected officials have not yet repealed enough land use laws to spark a housing boom that filters down to reduce homelessness. As for the LA Times, these contrary outcomes from the upzoning policies they support are not reported. This is why readers turn to alternative media like CityWatch LA to understand why the housing crisis is getting steadily worse. Dick Platkin is a retired Los Angeles city planner who reports on local planning issues for CityWatch LA. He is a board member of the United Neighborhoods for Los Angeles, or UN4LA. Previous columns are available at CityWatch LA Archives, and please send questions to rhplatkin at gmail.com. That's rhplatkin at gmail.com. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. This weekend brings a film festival and a ride for Palestine to Santa Barbara. KPFK's Marcy Winograd reports. The Santa Barbara International Film Festival opened this week and will run until Saturday, February 17th. The festival will showcase 45 world premieres and 77 U.S. premieres from 48 countries, along with panel discussions on independent filmmaking and documentary activism, as well as workshops for high school students who want to learn filmmaking. Claudia Pugh, she's the Santa Barbara International Film Festival Program Director. She told the press, we are especially proud that half of our slate of films are directed by women and a large percentage by underrepresented filmmakers. Nearly three quarters of the films have never been seen before in the United States. So what is the film festival showcasing? Dramas from South Korea, Indonesia, Iran, France. From India, a story of star-crossed love in the Punjabi region. And from Denmark, Birthday Girl about a dream cruise vacation that turns into a nightmare as a mother seeks justice for her 18-year-old daughter. When will the police be coming? Ma'am, we're on international waters. There is no police. Did you have something to drink tonight? Yes. No. It's not clad. The Santa Barbara International Film Festival also showcases documentaries like Giants Rising, which explores the plight of the redwood tree and Disconnect Me, about a guy who disconnects from his smartphone for 30 days. First, the Redwoods. We are so close to being able to decode many of the mysteries about the biology of coast redwood forests. It may shed some light as to the nature of longevity in human systems. Multiple trunks are all interacting and communicating underground. Things are much more interconnected than we think. The biggest threat redwood forests face today is the legacy of logging that they're still struggling to overcome. The warming temperatures and the increase in fire, that is a situation that the redwoods might not be able to withstand. Guys, normally what I do is I'll check my phone whilst I'm on the toilet, you know, um, checking for news or sports results. What would happen if I completely disconnect from my smartphone for a full 30 days? Would I be able to survive in this digital age? This is your spine and your air pipe is quite narrow over here. 
This tells me that you're continuously bending over. I don't want to be addicted. It's almost subconsciously just reach for your phone. You know, I wish I could put it away. I've got an alarm clock. What do you think about it? Yeah, but I like smartphones better. How much time do you spend on your phone? 12 hours a day? Whoa! Disconnect Me, a digital detox from Australian documentary film director Alex Lykos. To learn more about the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, visit sbiff.org. That's sbiff.org. Also on tap this weekend, the Central Coast Anti-War Coalition hosts the third ride for Palestine, inspired by the Gaza Sunbirds, a paracycling team that includes 20 Palestinian para-athletes who suffered life-altering injuries at the hands of the Israeli military. The Santa Barbara bike riders, sporting Palestinian flags and ceasefire placards, want to keep Palestine in the headlines, as reporters, such as this one from the BBC, tries to shut down the co-founder of the Gaza Sunbirds, Kareem Ali. This is a genocide happening in front of our eyes. We have, yeah, we, th- that word, as, as you know, incredibly emotive, and the Israelis, as you know, will be saying that they are targeting Hamas only, that they don't target well, civilians. Well, that's not the truth, unfortunately. Planned, you know, military no, incursions. Yes, but it's not the truth, yes, civilians are dying. Civilians are dying, and the, the way that the bombs are getting dropped, I don't believe are in a targeted way. Nothing from what I'm hearing on the ground suggests that the bombs have been dropped in a targeted way. Our social media manager, all five houses around him got blown up. They estimate 100 people were killed in them. Yesterday, his house was the last one remaining in the neighborhood. They leveled an entire neighborhood. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lucy. And I do need to make that qualification, of course, that, Hama, um, that it is always denied by the Israelis that genocide is taking place. They say these are strategic planned strikes in Gaza and that they are targeting the militant group Hamas. But I'm here to let the world know that that's not the case. Kareem, you've been able to have your say. This is what the Israelis will always say in response to that. Bike riders in Santa Barbara will meet at 11 a.m. at Pershing Park, 100 Castillo Street, and ride for Palestine for an hour or two to meet up with a 2 to 4 p.m. ceasefire street vigil at Stork and Hollister, one of the busiest intersections in Santa Barbara, Goleta, just a few doors from Lockheed Martin where protesters will call for an end to U.S.-Israeli genocide and U.S. bombings of Yemen, Iraq, and Syria. One of the world's largest weapons manufacturers, Lockheed Martin supplies Israel with F-16 and F-35 fighter jets to bomb and decimate Gaza. The local Lockheed Martin office manufactures sensors, or what the company calls the eyeballs of military aircraft. In Santa Barbara, on Chumashland, I'm Marcy Winograd for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. An American journalist traveling to Moscow to speak with the head of the Russian government had the U.S. media abuzz and full of name-calling and worse. But for the first time since the war began in Ukraine in 2014, Americans got to hear the Russian side of the story directly from the Russian president. Don DeBar has more. Thursday night saw the release of an interview by journalist Tucker Carlson of the president of the Russian Federation, Vladimir Putin. The Russian president spoke on a variety of issues in the much-anticipated conversation, much of which focused on the Ukrainian conflict and NATO expansionism. After two hours of conversation, Carlson closed with this question. I want to ask one more question, which is, and maybe you don't want to say so for strategic reasons, But are you worried that what's happening in Ukraine could lead to something much larger and much more horrible? And how motivated are you just to call the U.S. government and say, let's come to terms? I already said that we did not refuse to talk. We're willing to negotiate. It is the Western side, and Ukraine is obviously a satellite state of the U.S. It is evident. I do not want you to take it as if I'm looking for a strong word or an insult, but we both understand what is happening. 
что происходит. Финансовая поддержка, сколько? 72 миллиарда? The financial support, 72 billion US dollars was provided. Germany ranks second, then other European countries come. Dozens of billions of US dollars are going to Ukraine. There's a huge influx of weapons. In this case, you should tell the current Ukrainian leadership to stop and come to negotiating table, rescind this absurd decree. We did not refuse. Sure, but you already said it. I didn't think you meant it as an insult because you already said correctly, it's been reported that Ukraine was prevented from negotiating a peace settlement by the former British Prime Minister acting on behalf of the Biden administration. So of course they're a satellite. Big countries control small countries. That's not new. And that's why I asked about dealing directly with the Biden administration, which is making these decisions, not President Zelensky of Ukraine. Well, if the Zelensky administration in Ukraine refused to negotiate, I assume they did it under the instruction from Washington. If Washington believes it to be the wrong decision, let it abandon it. Let it find a delicate excuse so that no one is insulted. Let it come up with a way out. It was not us who made this decision, it was them. So let them go back on it. That is it. However, they made the wrong decision, and now we have to look for a way out of the situation to correct their mistakes. They did it, so let them correct it themselves. We support this. So I just want to make sure I'm not misunderstanding what you're saying. I don't think that I am. I think you're saying you want a negotiated settlement to what's happening in Ukraine. <laughs> right. And we made it. We prepared the huge document in Istanbul that was initialed by the head of the Ukrainian delegation. He affixed his signature to some of the provisions, not to all of it. He put his signature and then he himself said, we were ready to sign it and the war would have been over long ago, 18 months ago. However, Prime Minister Johnson came, talked us out of it, and we missed that chance. Well, you missed it, you made a mistake, let them get back to that, that is all. Why do we have to bother ourselves and correct somebody else's mistakes? I know one can say it is our mistake. It was us who intensified the situation and decided to put an end to the war that started in 2014 in Donbas. As I have already said, by means of weapons. Let me get back to furthering history. I already told you this. We were just discussing it. Let us go back to 1991, when we were promised that NATO would not expand, to 2000 when the doors to NATO opened to the declaration of state sovereignty of Ukraine, declaring Ukraine a neutral state. Let us go back to the fact that NATO and US military bases started to appear on the territory of Ukraine, creating threats to us. Let us go back to coup d'etat in Ukraine in 2014. It is pointless though, isn't it? We may go back and forth endlessly, but they stop negotiations. Is it a mistake? Yes. Correct it. We are ready. What else is needed? Do you think it's too humiliating at this point for NATO to accept Russian control of what was two years ago Ukrainian territory? I said, uh, let them think how to do it with dignity. There are options if there is a will. Up until now, there has been the uproar and screaming about inflicting a strategic defeat on Russia on the battlefield. Now they are apparently coming to realize that it is difficult to achieve, if possible at all. In my opinion, it is impossible by definition. It is never going to happen. It seems to me that now, those who are in power in the West have come to realize this as well. If so, if the realization has set in, they have to think what to do next. We are ready for this dialogue. Would you be willing to say, congratulations, NATO, you won, and just keep the situation where it is now? Jesus. 
Ну, вы знаете, это предмет переговоров. You know, it is a subject matter for the negotiations. No one is willing to conduct, or, to put it more accurately, they are willing, but do not know how to do it. I know they want to. It is not just I see it, but I know they do want it. But they are struggling to understand how to do it. They have driven the situation to the point where we are at. It is not us who have done that, it is our partners, opponents, who have done that. Well, now let them think how to reverse the situation. We're not against it. It would be funny if it were not so sad. This endless mobilization in Ukraine, the hysteria, the domestic problems, sooner or later it will result in agreement. You know, this probably sounds strange, given the current situation. But the relations between the two peoples will be rebuilt anyway. It will take a lot of time, but they will heal. I'll give you very unusual examples. There is a combat encounter on the battlefield. Here is a specific example. Ukrainian soldiers got encircled. This is an example from real life. Our soldiers were shouting to them, there is no chance, surrender yourselves, come out and you will be alive. Suddenly the Ukrainian soldiers were screaming from there in Russian, perfect Russian saying, Russians do not surrender, and all of them perished. They still identify themselves as Russian. What is happening is, to a certain extent, an element of a civil war. Everyone in the West thinks that the Russian people have been split by hostilities forever. No. They will be reunited. The unity is still there. Why are the Ukrainian authorities dismantling the Ukrainian Orthodox Church? Because it brings together not only the territory, it brings together our souls. No one will be able to separate the soul. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. Brazil's former president Jair Bolsonaro had to deliver his passport within 24 hours by order of the federal police, who are investigating him for his alleged participation in a coup attempt of January 8, 2023, when his followers attacked the Brazilian Congress. Telesur correspondent Brian Meir filed this report on Thursday morning from Brasilia. This morning, Brazil's federal police executed search warrants, made arrests, and issued an order to former President Jair Bolsonaro to turn over his passport to authorities within 24 hours or run the risk of being arrested, as he is considered a flight risk in an ongoing investigation into the failed January 8, 2023 coup attempt, which is entitled Operation Tempus Veritatis. Among those arrested, Felipe Martins, former aide to President Bolsonaro and former employee of the U.S. Embassy in Brasilia. During the lead-up to the 2016 coup against Dilma Rousseff, Felipe Martins worked as economic advisor to the U.S. Embassy. He then took on a role as advisor to President Bolsonaro, where he's credited as being the person who first introduced Bolsonaro to Steve Bannon. He was also present at several meetings between former President Bolsonaro and Donald Trump. Among recipients of federal police search and seizure operations this morning, General Augusto Heleno, one of the most notorious holdovers from Brazil's neo-fascist military dictatorship of 1964 to 1985, known around the world as Minostock commander during the Sich Soleil massacre in Haiti. Heleno became the chief of institutional security for Bolsonaro, overseeing 17 government agencies, including intelligence. As of tomorrow, Jair Bolsonaro will not be able to flee the country. 
Palestinians claim Israeli police are still regularly rounding people up and jailing them without charges ever being brought forward. Some families of those detained even claim they are then placed under constant surveillance. RT's Maria Finoshina visited one such family. Amidst hopes of another Israel-Hamas deal expected to involve the exchange of Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails, the number of the latter is on the rise. Since October the 7th, at least 6,400 people have been arrested by Israel all throughout the West Bank. The idea of raids here intensified, with the army saying it is searching for Hamas members or supporters. But human rights organizations say often those who end up behind bars have nothing to do with the activities of the militant group and sometimes are not even wanted by Israel. Two male members of this Palestinian family are now Israeli inmates, the father, Nu, and his son, Ahmad. Both are jailed under controversial administrative detention, without formal charges or trial, based on allegations that they may intend to commit a crime. The family has long been under scrutiny by Israeli authorities for being devout Muslims, a red flag for Israel at a time of a war against hardline Islamist militant groups in Gaza. But before the father was arrested, Israeli forces had come for his second son to put pressure on the family. They told him, we'll let you go when your father comes. We'll let you go when your father comes. But they kept beating him. His head and face were all beaten up. And I don't know if you saw the pictures. They didn't just arrest him. They beat him and broke him. On the day of his release, I saw him walking, barely able to move. So I told other son to go help him. The family says at the time of the arrest, Mahmoud's father, who was Israel's initial target, was coming back from prayer. He didn't hide and immediately told authorities he was ready to come. But it didn't save his son from a day-long detention that, according to relatives, involved violence. For about two full weeks, he was in severe pain from what he went through. He couldn't go to work or do anything. He couldn't drive. He couldn't carry anything at all. He was subjected to constant beatings. They beat him from the moment they took him until they released him, even though it was his father that they wanted. Do you think when they detain Mahmoud, it's like punishment for the family or something like that? Mm, not, for, not for the family only, but for the whole community. The family complains that Israeli authorities monitor them and keep up the pressure. I received a call from an unknown number. I answered, hello, who is this? And the person said, I'm Captain Zaki. I want to talk to you about your daughters. I'm going to arrest them because they have been posting on Facebook. At that exact moment, because their father is in prison and my other son is in prison too, I was really stressed. Why would you come to arrest them? They haven't done anything. I'm constantly living in fear and anxiety for them, afraid that at any moment they might come back to arrest me or my sons or daughters for no reason at all. Adamir, a Palestinian prisoner support association, claims Israel uses the families as hostages. The occupation detains children, women, the elderly and the sick to pressure their relatives into handing themselves in, which is part of the collective punishment against Palestinian families. It's hard to say how many of those 6,400 Palestinians arrested since the war in Gaza began ended up behind bars because of their wanted relatives. According to Adamir, more than 80% of all detainees have not faced formal charges or trial. Unfortunately, these are crimes punishable under international law, but the occupiers do not comply with international law and don't care about it, which makes it hard to hold them accountable for their crimes and genocide in Gaza. And considering the global focus is now on Israel's actions in Gaza, the likelihood of the international community dedicating time and resources to pursue justice for Palestinian prisoners appears slim. Tensions are heating up in East Africa after Ethiopia recently sealed a controversial deal with the separatist Republic of Somaliland. The government of Somalia, which does not recognize Somaliland as an independent state, slammed the agreement that would give Ethiopia access to the Red Sea. However, if one digs a little bit deeper into the conflict, it seems Uncle Sam has been at work again, stimulating discord. RT contributor Che Bose has this report. When you hear about a conflict between two strategically important African nations, it's always worth digging a little deeper. And when you do, surprise, surprise, Uncle Sam has been at work stimulating discord and sowing division. And this isn't exactly breaking news. Washington's been stirring up trouble in the region since 2007, with millions of dollars pumped into Somaliland by U.S. NGOs, purely to fund democracy. 
not, for example, to counter growing Chinese influence in the region. We have come to the U.S. to show them that we have the same enemy, and our long-term strategy is we want to be closer to democracies and market economies like the U.S. We are countering China and the Chinese influence in the Horn of Africa, and we deserve U.S. government help. And what's in it for the U.S., I hear you say? Well, let's take a look at Somaliland's strategically important position on the map. It occupies some prime real estate along the Gulf of Aden, near the entrance to the Bab al-Mandib Strait, which just so happens to be a major sea lane, through which almost a third of the world's shipping passes. Of course, the Houthis in Yemen have recently highlighted just how vulnerable these waters are. But it all seems kind of familiar, right? Think of Taiwan and you'll get the picture. And just like in Taipei, the U.S. is trying to ride two horses at once. And that usually ends badly. The United States recognizes the Federal Republic of Somalia's sovereignty, unity, and territorial integrity, which includes Somaliland. We believe the status of Somaliland is an issue for Somalis, including Somalilanders, to decide. And while no UN members actually recognize Somaliland as a sovereign state, guess who does? Yep, you've got it. Taiwan. And while the U.S. is all about integrity of borders and the rules-based order elsewhere, it seems more than happy to celebrate the newfound friendship between these two legally unrecognized territories. Great to see Taiwan stepping up its engagement in East Africa in a time of such tremendous need. Taiwan is a great partner in health, education, technical assistance and more. And despite Washington's apparent support for democracy in Somaliland, the U.S. actually simultaneously backed an Ethiopian military incursion into the region back in 2007. It seems Washington's a la carte morality knows no bounds in Africa, Asia, or in Ukraine. And when it comes to international law, Washington can seemingly make up the rules as it goes along. And that's all in today's international news from non-NATO media. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, I'm Paulina Vasiliev. We're coming to the end of our show, but before we sign off on this Friday edition of KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, I'll ask you one more time to pick up the phone and dial 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Become a member of our sustainer circle and join the KPFK family by donating $25, 50 $100 or more. Real Public Radio for Southern California, the only place that can broadcast a message that is not approved by America's corporate owners. So please pick up your phone and dial 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Or go online to kpfk.org and donate to this iconic, one-of-a-kind L.A. radio station. Help us keep KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles on the air by picking up your phones and calling 818-985-5735. Again, 818-985-5735. Or go to our website at kpfk.org and donate today, and thank you. This has been your Friday edition of KPFK Rebel Alliance News. I'd like to thank our engineer, Wendell Handy, and tonight's Rebel Alliance News contributors, Dick Platkin, Marcy Winograd, Don DeBar, and Paulina Vasiliev. And of course, our show's producer, Zeri Rideau. KPFK's Rebel Alliance News will be back on Monday, but stay tuned, because coming up next is Soul Rebel Radio. Have a great weekend, Rebels. From the hashtag New Cal Exit YouTube channel, Red Star Report, I'm Hal Lore for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. Peace, everybody. This is DJ Sean O, and you are listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. I wanted to let you know you can check out Soundwaves Radio with host Val the Vandal and myself each and every Friday evening from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on 90.7 FM KPFK Los Angeles. Hi, this is Dennis Bernstein. I host the Flashpoint Show now on KPFK. And on Flashpoints, we believe in getting deep into the story, getting behind the news, under the news, inside the news. We go oftentimes where others don't. We took our team to Standing Rock, 
We took our team many times to the U.S.-Mexico border to document the violence being perpetrated by those fleeing human rights violations. We have been in Tucson. We were there to witness when the local politicians ripped the ethnic studies program right out from under kids in junior high school and high school. We were there as the kids cried about the ending of their program by some white racists. That's what we do. We're flashpoints. We go where people are fighting, where people are being